0: Happy Sunday, everybody. How you doing? I hope you brought your scuba gear today because we are going deep. Wow, Can't believe that line worked. Hey, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ezra, the book of Ezra. And we're going to start in chapter one. I'm excited to start a new series entitled Revive Us, all about revival. And one of my favorite revivals as I study the history of revivals is the Welsh revival happening in 1904 and 1905. And the central figure is an unlikely young man named Evan Roberts. He was born in a poor mining community. And his father actually suffered a a near-fatal accident and ended up crushing his foot in the mines. And so at 11 years old, his father had to uh, pull young Evan out of school to go and work for him in his place in the mines. And it was down there in the, the deep pits in the darkness where Evan really met God. And can I just tell you, it's often in our dark pits of our life that we meet God. And it was there that he actually made enough money to buy his own Bible. Back then, young people didn't often have their own copy of the scripture. And he started having time as he was a knocker, he'd just have to stand and wait until someone knocked on the door and then he'd open the door for safety's sake. Down there in those hours on end that he would pour into scripture and he'd also become a person of prayer. In fact, he uh, experienced a a very dangerous explosion that almost killed him. Five miners around him died and it was so close to him that it burned, it singed his Bible. And it's the Bible that he'd preached the revival in. So the, the actual Bible that he preached the revival was singed by fire. But he would uh, lose his job in the mines. He longed to be a missionary to represent Jesus in other countries, but his poor family needed him, so he went on to be a blacksmith and a blacksmith's apprentice. And he would come in on Sundays to church services, absolutely exhausted from six days of grueling work. But as he'd sit there, he would just be crying out to God, and he had what he experienced and called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so he began seeking God uh, in his free time, which is in the evening. And God started waking him up oftentimes at 1 a.m. and he'd pray until 4 or 5 a.m., just having these deep encounters with the Lord. So when he finally stood up to preach his first sermon to the, the young people of his church, the presence of God was so on him that the young people just started to cry. I don't know if you've ever experienced the presence of God in a manifest way. It's hard to to not start crying. And other people started just bending over and bowing in prayer. And then one after the other young people that had been shy and timid started standing up and saying their name and saying, I love Jesus with all my heart. And sobbing ensued and no one wanted to leave. And for hours they met until finally they said, we've got to end for the night. We'll meet tomorrow. And so many people were talking about what God had done in the church service that night that the whole village basically showed up the next night, and it started what became known as the Welsh Revival. Evan Roberts started praying that 100,000 of his countrymen would come to the Lord. He'd cry out, give me Wales or I'll die. And God not only answered that prayer, it was documented that 150,000 Welsh gave their lives to Jesus. The revival was so transformative that actually different law enforcement officers had to change jobs because there were so few people committing crimes bars were closing down and instead churches were being packed and one of the most peculiar signs of this revival was the horses were confused the horses that would draw the carts through the mines because the miners were so transformed in their character that they stopped using the foul language and stopped abusing their animals that the horses didn't know how to respond to their newly kind masters (laughs) Can I just tell you that we need a revival in our land today. We need a revival that changes the heart. We need a revival that draws us into the presence of God, where we focus on him and see scores of people coming to know Jesus. And God uses unlikely people to begin revivals. And that's where we are as we open the book of Ezra today. I want to give you a little background before we get started. Last week, you heard me talk about the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, it's divided in two halves. The first half is the Old Testament. I'm going to outline that in a minute. Then the second half is called the New Testament. That's where Jesus shows up, our Savior, and he tells the gospel, and it starts the church, and we start seeing it spread to all nations. But I want to unpack for a moment the Old Testament. I'm going to attempt to summarize the whole Old Testament in three and a half minutes. So here we go. I'm going to put up a little diagram for you. I hope you brought your your thinking caps today. Um, And I'm going to blow it up in a second. But just for you to see, this is the whole Old Testament, starting with creation all the way to the end of the Old Testament. So now let's divide that in half and pay close attention because this is going to help put this whole book in context. We start with creation. What we know is what's going on on the earth is not just happenstance. It's not by accident. It's by God's design. We have a loving Father who spoke and put the heavens and earth in motion and created man and woman. But that man and woman fell into sin. But we see that God still was pursuing sinful man. And he called a man named Abraham. And he said, from this barren man and woman, I'm going to create a family and a nation. And that nation became known as Israel. The next period was the patriarchs where we see his children, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and we see their story until they become a mighty people and they go into slavery in the land of Egypt. They're oppressed by Pharaoh until God steps in and does signs and wonders and does this massive deliverance where he takes his people, parts of Red Sea, and takes them into the wilderness. And then these books, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, are written there until he... He gives them a promised land after 40 years. They enter into Canaan and he says, I'm going to give you this beautiful place, a place flowing with milk and honey. And we see these two books, Deuteronomy and Joshua, as the conquest is they have to go in and defeat these pagan nations that are not following the Lord. Now we're going to move to the more complex part. The next part is the period of judges. God sends these different ones that were judges to lead his people. And you see these books, Judges and First Samuel and the book of Ruth that were written then. The people cry out and say, well, we actually want a king to be like all other nations. And they're warned, if you have a king, this king will often serve themselves. So they get this, this strong, mighty king. His name is Saul, but he becomes a very selfish man. And so there's some problems until God raises up a man after his own heart named David. And David was a worshiper, and David wrote the book of Psalms, which is a a book of worship, and then David has a son named Solomon. And Solomon wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. So we're we're seeing and learning their story here. But Solomon had a problem. He had tons of wives. We only need one. And (laughs) His wives turned him away to other gods, and so God says, well, I'm going to have to end up taking your kingdom away from you, but because I love you so much, I'm going to save a remnant. But there's the division of the kingdom, and what we have here is all these kings, and most of them turned away from the Lord. And so you have all these prophetic books, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Isaiah, Micah, and on and on, and most of them, here's the general summary. If you want to know the general summary of these prophetic books is... All cut it out, guys, or something bad's going to happen. That's my general summary of the prophetic books. And sure enough, something bad happens. The fall of the northern kingdom, the kingdom had been divided into two pieces. Israel was ten tribes, and that's the northern kingdom. And they keep sinning and keep sinning. And so finally the Assyrians come, and they destroy that part of the country, and they take them into captivity. And then there's still Judah, and Benjamin, the southern kingdom, and they continue to sin, and finally, they are captured by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar, and so that's where we get the book of Daniel written from captivity, but there was always a promise from God saying, I'm going to bring you back to your land, and I'm going to restore you so you can be my people, and that's where we come for the book of Ezra in the restoration of the land. So would you stand with me now for the reading of the word of God? says this in Ezra 1.1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia says. The Lord The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who's in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then, The family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts. In addition to all the freewill offerings, moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithradath to the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Would you just place your hand on your heart as I pray? Father, we ask that our hearts would be tender, that our hearts would be good soil for the planting of the word to grow and to transform us into the people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Have a seat. This book is is so different from other books. What other book starts this way? When we study the Bible, we see that almost every book starts with a prophet or it starts with an apostle. We're used to a book starting by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to this place. Or we see Isaiah, a prophet, or Jeremiah, a prophet. But this book, this book starts with a pagan king. It starts with someone that you would never think would be used by God. It starts with a conqueror. Did you you catch the context of this? That the people of Israel, they're in captivity. They've been in Babylon, they've been captured, they've been ravaged, and Israel is desolate. It's an empty land. The temple has been destroyed, and all of a sudden, this king comes on the scene Cyrus, king of Persia, a pagan a destroyer, a conqueror, and he all of a sudden starts talking about the Lord and decreeing what the Lord wants to do. Can I just tell you that God uses unlikely people? And you might be thinking, you know, what does a series on revival have to do with me? Man, I'm just trying to survive. I've had a hard life. I'm just trying to make it. Can I just tell you that God uses unlikely people to start moves of God? We're going to learn some powerful lessons from him as we dive in to verse 1. It says this, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. If you have a paper Bible, I'd encourage you to underline that. If you're on your phone, I'd encourage you to highlight that. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord. Can I just tell you that there is a word of the Lord over your life? Can I just tell you that your life is not just a conglomeration of random circumstances, but that the living God sees you, and he has a plan for you. And it's written in his book. Listen to this in Psalm 139. It says this, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, you saw my unformed body All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The Lord is known as the author and the perfecter of our faith. And one of the greatest things we can do is go and get the word of the Lord over our lives. Is to understand what is God speaking over us. When I was 22 years old, before I was... A pastor, I went into a small group, a church small group. Man, I I love small groups because in them, everyone gets to do the work of the ministry. And so they were they were going to pray over me. They they put me in the middle of this group and said, "We're going to pray and prophesy over you." I love the gift of prophecy because it's not just about foretelling dramatic events in the future. It's about comfort and edification and encouragement. It's about speaking identity over people. And so they put me in this group. I was actually in a different city, so I was living in Texas. I went up to I was in a small group in in a Kansas City, and I'm sitting in this small group, and they start praying for me. And the first person says you're going to be a winsome evangelist. And I'm thinking, man, that's funny. I don't really lead anyone to the Lord. The second person looks at me and says, you're going to have an international ministry. Wow, that's cool. The third person says, you're going to be betrayed in ministry. And I thought, that's not cool. And then the the fourth person said, you're going to be like Paul Revere, uh, traveling around, uh, helping awaken a nation. I thought, wow. That's cool. Can I just tell you, that was 21 years ago and I still remember distinctly what they said and I, I wrote them down and treasured it and three of the four of those have come to fruition. I became a winsome evangelist. I started loving leading people to the Lord everywhere I went. I I... I We now have an international ministry. I'm often not here because we travel the world planting churches. And number three, I have been betrayed in ministry, and I was so glad I had that word to know God's going to be with me. And you already knew this was going to happen, and you were preparing it for me. And the number four, I'm just believing it's going to happen someday. Can I tell you, God knows your name, and he knows your story. And it gives you strength when you receive a word and you stand on it. But let, let me just tell you this. Let me just give you some practicals for discerning words when, when, when people have them over you. Number one, someone comes up and prays for you and, and has a prophetic word. Number one, test it. Test it. Can I just tell you every word is not from the Lord? I have gotten some bizarre words. Through the years. Everything that someone says, it, its you don't have to take it in. You know, you, you need to test it and see, does it line up with this Bible? And does it have a right spirit about it? You can feel when something's just off. Second of all, uh, consider the source, right? If the person's creepy, then then maybe, maybe they're not functioning in the spirit of God, right? Now, now God can use anyone. Now, you know what? But I typically give the most credence to the words that are from people that I know are walking closely with the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, God used a donkey to speak. So God can speak through anyone. But consider the source. Number three, write it down. Write it down. You know, you say, I really want to hear from the Lord. Well, did you write down the last thing he spoke to you? Treasure what God gives you. If you're faithful in little, he'll give you more. That's what Scripture says. Number four, ask some mature believers to affirm whether that word they think is right on. I remember when I got this winsome evangelist word, I was like, man, is that is that on? I, that doesn't feel like me. And an older believer said, no, that is you. I can see that happening in your future. And sure enough, it did. Number five, stand on the word and pray in the word. Like just this morning, I, I, I use the words of the Lord that are spoken over me. They, they inspire faith. Faith comes from hearing the word of God is what the book of Romans says. I was in the shower this morning just speaking out words that God has spoken over me to encourage myself in the Lord. So, so this is awesome, because here you have a pagan king saying, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. So look at, what were those words? Jeremiah the prophet, before Cyrus came into power, had spoken this. Jeremiah 25, 11, The whole country will become a desolate wasteland, And these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Can I just tell you before Israel went into captivity, Jeremiah the prophet prophesied it? Can I just tell you that God's in charge of history? And so all of a sudden Babylon comes and captures Judah and they go and are enslaved to the king of Babylon. So Cyrus knew this. And it said, but when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of Babylon, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and make it desolate forever. So Cyrus comes, and all of a sudden he comes and kicks the tail of the Babylonian king. Uh, Sometimes people say, gosh, you know, I just don't know how if I have faith to believe this book. You don't need faith, you just need to believe in history. Like, you just need to be rational. There's not a more validated book by in history than this book. Can, do you hear what I'm saying? Like, where, where prophets prophesy something, and then 100 years later it happens, and it's all written in this book? And every every year we're finding more archaeological discoveries that validate this book? Like, you just need to be rational to believe this book. This book is the most validated book in all of history. This is what the Lord says. This is Jeremiah 29. I love this. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. One of the most famous scriptures in all of the Bible. And yet here it is. It's talking about bringing the people of God. Can I tell you that the captivity was exactly 70 years? Exactly what was prophesied. Now, you think that's cool. I want to show you something even more amazing. Isaiah, 150 years before Cyrus was even born, said this. Watch this. Isaiah 44. Who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers? Who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. And of their ruins, I will restore them. Okay, so remember, at this time where we're studying, Jerusalem is desolate. Israel is uninhabited. And so this is what he's prophesying about 150 years before. Who says to the watery deep, Be dry, and I will dry up your streams? Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and, and will accomplish all that I please? He says, Who says of Cyrus 150 years before there was a Cyrus? Like, this is before Cyrus's great grandmommy. Do you understand that God knows the future? Do you understand that this book is true? Do you believe this book? Let's start living by it. Let's start reading it. This is amazing. What other book foretells the future 150 years to the exact person's name? You're like, I'm wondering, you know, when she sings, you know my name. Oh, my gosh. He knows your name 150 years before you came into being, even when your name is Cyrus and you're a pagan king. You're like, well, I I didn't grow up in church. Neither did Cyrus. Cyrus. He's a pagan, unbelieving king, and God's saying, I'm going to use him. I'm going to use this guy. It's unreal. Let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. So God gets a hold of this unlikely person. Lessons from an unlikely man. God gets a hold of this unlikely person. And I want you to read what this person, who didn't grow up in church, he didn't grow up in a Christian family. Now he was a bad boy. He was I mean, he wasn't just going and picking on people, he was going and picking on nations. I want you to read what he says. Listen to this. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and at Judah. Any of his people among you may go up from Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who's in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now live, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. What was Cyrus thinking about? God. I think sometimes we're like, you know, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a minister. I'm not a missionary. They're the ones who kind of just think about God all the time. I'm a normal person. Can I just tell you that this king who wasn't a pastor, who wasn't a missionary, you know what his obsession was? God. His obsession was God. and, And not just that, rebuilding the temple and seeing the people of God restored can I just tell you, I, 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 I hope that I'm talking to a bunch of Cyruses today that are, that are saying, you know what, my, my job might be a king, my job might be in business, my job might be in the military, but my obsession is God. And my, I, I might be in the military, but my higher mission is to advance the kingdom of the Lord. I, I, I might be a student, but my, my end game is not just making some good grades. My end game is loving Jesus and making him known and I'm going to give whatever I have. I love how he says, "All that I've, he's given all, me all this, and so what I'm going to do is build his kingdom. Is that your heart today? Is that, are you a modern-day Cyrus? Oh, you're unlikely. You didn't even come from a Christian family. You might have come from a pagan religion. You might have been a bad boy and done all kinds of bad things, but God's getting a hold of your heart, and you're saying, now everything is about him. You see, because revival starts with unlikely people. Revival starts with unlikely people. I uh, This gives me so much faith to, to pray for world leaders and to pray for nations because you never knew. They, the Israelites would have never thought, well, we're going to come and be set free by, by, by another pagan nation that's going to come and capture us. Like that... God works in mysterious ways. I, I remember in 2000, one of the most uh, oppressive regimes was in Afghanistan. And it just seemed like it couldn't change. And they were oppressing orphans and widows. And the Taliban just had this tight control. And, and you just thought, how could things ever change? And a couple of my friends were missionaries there. And they got arrested by the Taliban for showing the Jesus film to a, to a small group of about 10 people. And they had a death sentence on their life. It seemed hopeless, but can I tell you, with God, there's always hope. And so people start praying for him. Our church starts praying for him, and then it makes national news, and hundreds of people start praying, and thousands, and then tens of thousands of people start praying for them. And all of a sudden, in a moment, the Taliban loses their stronghold of power there. And do you know what happens? What was oppressed, and they couldn't even show the Jesus film in a home without being arrested, all of a sudden they get freed from prison, and the Jesus film is showed on national TV in all of Afghanistan. And thousands give their life to Jesus. There are thousands of people following Jesus now in Afghanistan. Now, there's still work to do, but God can change things in a moment. When we pray, absolutely amazing. It says this: "The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of Judah, uh, of the earth, and He has appointed me to build the temple for Him at Jerusalem and Judah." Can, can can God get a hold of a world leader? Can God get a hold of a world leader and in a moment turn it to advance the people of God? 1884. 1884, a young man is, is born to a, a family of, of pioneers who've moved from the east out to the west seeking work and this young man he's got really bad vision and he had a a, a small frame so his mother didn't let him participate in the in the athletics and in the roughhousing of young boys so instead he just grows up spending his time in the library but it was in the library that he started reading biographies and he became captured by people who impacted history and so this this young man ends up enlisting in the army and he in France, becomes a captain, and and does this amazing job leading a, a division of the U.S. Army, and starts all of a sudden coming back and rising through the ranks, and he becomes a politician, and he becomes the vice president of the United States. Well, at the same time, there was an evil regime, it became World War II, and a man named Adolf Hitler is trying to destroy God's people, the Jews, and he is killed, killed six million of them in the Holocaust. And finally, in a massive clash called World War II, the Holocaust ends, but there's hundreds of thousands of Jewish refugees living in refugee camps. And people are saying, where should they go? And a brave man named David Ben-Gurion, a Jew himself, says, we need to have our home back, the land that God promised us. We need to go back to Palestine. And so they said, we're going to declare Israel a state again, 1948. It hadn't been a state for 2,000 years. Israel hadn't been a nation in 2,000 years. And as soon as they do that, all the nations around them surround them and say, no, we're going to destroy you. You cannot be a state, we're going to destroy you, we're going to push you into the Mediterranean, you'll be annihilated. Israel needed a defender. Well, this young man, who had bad vision and who couldn't roughhouse and play sports, so he had been in a library, and in that library had read books about people becoming great figures. And in that library, by the way, he had read the whole Bible two times through by the age of 12 Now he's a military captain. Now he's the vice president of the United States. His name's Harry Truman. And at that time, boom, he becomes the president of the United States. Israel needed a defender. And the president of the United States will, the U.S., actually step in and take the heat of the nations of the world. And a a Jewish man comes to Harry Truman, a childhood friend, and says to him, I believe you were raised up for such a time as this. The words spoken to Esther in the Bible. And Harry Truman, in that moment, stands up and says, the U.S. will defend Israel, and we'll be the first country to agree and stand with them as they become a state. And the rest is history. In 1948, the nation of Israel is reborn. And the Jews come to thank Harry Truman and say, Thank you for standing with us because when you stood, other nations affirmed our statehood and we weren't destroyed and we survived. And the Jewish people, for the first time in 2,000 years, have a homeland again. Thank you so much for what you did. And Harry Truman said this, and I quote, He goes, I am Cyrus. God can get a hold of world leaders. We need to pray. We need to pray for our president. We need to pray for our senators. We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our mayor of San Diego. When God puts them on your heart, don't criticize. Let's pray, because God can use them to advocate for his people. But you know, it's not just that. It it. What one person does can affect generations. It can affect the generations. This morning, I was just impacted with this thought. And so early this morning, I was just pacing back and forth in my backyard, and I was praying not just for my kids. You know, the Bible says this, that that righteousness will be blessed for a 1,000 generations. I wasn't just praying for my kids. I was praying for my grandkids, and I was praying for my great-grandkids this morning. Do you know that the decisions you make will affect generations? Have you ever heard of a guy named Thomas Jefferson? He wrote a little paper called the Declaration of Independence. That's so why you're getting to sit here today living in freedom. Do you know that Thomas Jefferson had two volumes of a, of a book that's, that really influenced him to believe for a multi-ethnic, multilingual country, where there was freedom of religion, do you know what that book was called? The Cyropedia. Cyropedia. We have Wikipedia. He had Cyropedia. Do you know what the Cyropedia was? It was an ancient Grecian book written about the philosophy of government by King Cyrus. Do you understand that the forming of this nation and our freedoms and our embracing of cultures, bridging them together, all living peacefully as one people, that started with King Cyrus. What someone did in 586 B.C. is affecting you today. Don't ever underestimate the decisions you make, the stand you take for righteousness, the way you hunger after the Lord, the decision of one person, the decision of one person like Evan Roberts, transformed a nation. I am praying in this series, as we talk about revival, that just one of you gets it. Like just, it only takes one person to just say, I'm going after Jesus with all my heart. And he starts meeting you in such powerful ways that the presence of God is just on you. And you walk in here and we just start experiencing it. And we're just undone before you. And you're saying, well, pastor, shouldn't that be you? Well, I'm trying. But, but here's my thing for you. Stay thirsty, my friends. We're taking that commercial back, folks. That's a prophetic word over this generation. Be thirsty for God because when you meet God, it starts transforming everyone around you and it starts transforming your schools. It starts transforming your businesses, your neighborhoods, your family. Your family needs a revival. Your business place needs a revival. Your school needs a revival. This city needs a revival. I don't want to just read about revivals in history. I want to live history now. That's it. Stand up.